young boy was playing with an immense amount of marbles. He had been collecting marbles for a few years, and he was just intrigued by them, just looking at them, trying to recognize all the differences between them, and finding different games to be able to play with his marbles. Well, his marble collection had grown to the point that he realized he needed somewhere special to keep them. The little plastic Ziploc bag had had just served its purpose. He was ready for something a little more special. And so he decided to look around the house to see if he could find something worthy of holding his marble collection. So he walked into the dining room of his parents' house, and he looked around, and sitting up there on the hutch was a vase. And he looks up on the shelf. He sees that vase. It's, it's a nice-looking vase. It seemed like it was big enough to hold his current marble collection and even to be able to expand his collection over time. And so he decides to pull a chair over. He pulls this chair over right next to the hutch. He reaches up and he grabs the vase. And it slips in his fingers, but he, but he catches it. He steps down out of the chair. He gets down onto the floor and he starts loading the marbles into the vase. Clunk, clunk. Clunk, clunk, until he's exhausted all of his marbles and there's a little bit of room left in that vase. And now he has this wonderful vase, this beautiful vase to hold all of his marbles. His collection has a place to reside. How wonderful this is for this little boy. And his father walks into the room. He looks down at the floor. He sees his boy there with the marbles and with that vase. And he looks at his son. He says, son, what are you doing? And his son says, well, I'm looking for a place to store my marbles. And and I found this vase. And his father says, well, son, this vase, it's special. It's up on the hutch for display. It's not to be used. It's special. So the father walks over and he carefully takes the marbles. He takes the vase and he spills the marbles out of the vase. And he takes the vase and puts it back in its special place on the hutch. A couple of weeks pass by and and the family's traveling. And they go into this store. and, And walking through the store, this young boy, he sees a shelf with all of these vases. Identical to the one in his dining room. And he notices the sign on the shelf, $5, $5. And he thinks to himself, what's so special about this vase? The little boy says, my father doesn't want me to play with this vase, but it's the perfect thing to hold my marbles. And so as his father's not looking, he tiptoes into the dining room. He grabs that chair. He slides it back over to the hutch. He climbs up onto the chair. He reaches and grabs the vase. This time again, it slips. But this time, he doesn't catch it. It hits the ground. It crashes into a thousand pieces. His father rushes in and says, What are you doing? I told you not to touch that vase. Don't you realize what you've done? Boy gets up. He just kind of scratches his head. He says, Yes, Dad, I'm sorry. Here, wait a second. And he runs off to his room and he comes back and he says, Dad, I'm sorry I broke your vase. Here's $5 to replace it. We're going to come back to that story 
in just a little bit. But before we get to the story, there's a couple of questions I want us to consider together. And I first want to begin by asking Christians, from what have you been saved? So we read in Mark chapter 16, verse 16 in the Great Commission, He that believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. From what have you been saved? Now, I also realize there are a number of individuals that are here today or, or perhaps tuning in today who have not made that commitment to Christ. Maybe you're in a form of repentance. Uh, you're moving in the direction of knowledge about God and, and your desire is to understand more about the salvation that He provides. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that God's desire is that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And your desire now is to fulfill God's desire. You're a seeker. You're trying to get that better understanding, that better comprehension of God's truth. And perhaps you even know what you need to do in order to be saved. You just haven't made that final commitment. You haven't taken that final step. And so the question I want to ask you this morning, from what would you wish to be saved? From what would you wish to be saved? Now, there are a number of things, any number of things that we could wish to be saved from. See, a person could wish to be saved from their hurts or their habits or from their heartbreaks. I would imagine that all of us in here this morning, we've lost a loved one. It may have been a father. It may have been a mother. It may have been a sibling. It may have been a child or a grandchild or a friend. And, and perhaps our wish to God is that He would deliver us from those heartaches and from those pains and from those hurts. Some of you, you, you look around the world and you see that there is war in this world, whether it's a literal war or metaphorical. And you would desire that God would provide peace in this life. And so in your prayers, you ask God to bring peace to mankind. Or maybe an individual recognizes they have a problem with another individual. And now there's a war between the two and they haven't been able to work it out. And so perhaps we ask, please deliver us from this war within. Maybe there's poverty or, or financial stress. Some of you may be in a place of transition from one workplace to another, or maybe you found yourself without work, not because of anything you've done, but because of the current situation in our society and in the economy. So you may find yourself under an incredible stress financially. And your prayer to God is that He would help deliver you from this, that He would open some doors of opportunity. Maybe you feel as though you've been mistreated. Others mock you. Others make fun of you. Maybe as a child in school, you've been bullied. Even adults can be bullied. Maybe we've been mistreated by an employer mistreated by a fellow employee. And so we would ask God, please deliver us from this mistreatment. One of these things can, can potentially deaden the, the happiness that's in our lives. 
And certainly God wants to help us. And He can. Romans tells us that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are the called according to His purpose. If we believe in God, God can help. Now, it may not be in the way that we would want Him to help, but God can help. We believe that. We are sure of that. But there is only one thing from which a person may be saved that has any eternal significance. It's not our hurts, as difficult as they may be. It's not our pains. It's not our heartbreaks. It's not war. It's not poverty. It's not social unrest. It's not financial stress. As difficult and as challenging as those things might be, none of those things from which we can be saved by the grace of God has eternal consequence for our souls. So what does? Sin. Sin does. One thing from which we might be saved that has eternal significance, and that one thing is sin. See, sin leads to death. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin leads to all of our deaths. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, Unless you believe I am He, you will die in your sins. James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 tells us every man is drawn away. He is enticed by his own lust. And lust, when it has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth what? Death. Sin leads to death. It also alienates us from God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 reminds us, God's hand is not so short that it can't reach us. His ears not so heavy or dull that he can't hear us. But our sins have separated us from God. Our iniquities have caused Him to, to hide His face from us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 reminds us of the past life of sin that, that many of us who are now Christians used to live. We were alienated, Paul says. We were foreigners to God. That's what sin does. It alienates us from a holy and righteous God, and it also enslaves us. Sin enslaves us to do its bidding, to do its work. Romans 6, verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you might obey its passions. If you have sin in you, it is controlling you. Peter says, whatever overcomes a person, that's the thing he's enslaved to. And we also know that sin is the subject of God's wrath. Romans 1, verse 18, Romans 2, verses 5 and 8, Romans 5, verse 9, they all remind us that we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who saved us from the wrath of God against 
sin. Romans 2 verse 5 warns us, We with impenitent hearts are storing up wrath against ourselves against the day of judgment. Verse 8 says there's there's wrath and fury on those who are self-seeking and disobedient. Sin forbids eternal hope. Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9, Jesus, he, he speaks in this hyperbole, this, this great exaggeration. It's there that Jesus is talking about temptation and the seriousness of temptation. He says, if you have an eye or a hand or a foot that causes you to sin, cut it off, pluck it out, throw it away. He says, it's better for you to enter into life lame and blind and crippled than to be lost for eternity. That's the consequence of sin. You severely offended a righteous and holy God. Sin is the one thing from which we may be saved that has eternal consequence. So how does God see sin. Well, he hates it. He can't stand it. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, tell us there are six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination. And among those things are lies, hypocrisy, murder, sowing discord. The seventh one, sowing discord, is, it's the one considered an abomination. It's even worse than something that he hates. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Habakkuk acknowledged that God is of such pure light that he can't even look upon sin. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? Paul said to the Corinthians that Jesus, in that moment, Jesus became sin. And as he was hanging there, God couldn't look at him. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is too pure in his eyes to be able to look at sin. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie because it's impossible for God to sin. James even says, let no man say when he is tempted that he's tempted of God because God can't tempt man to sin. Not only does God not sin, He can't even tempt us to sin. It's not in His nature. It's not in His ability to even lead us down the path of sin. Sin is a complete contradiction to God. James tells us in James chapter 4 and verse 4, whoever makes himself a friend with the world has become an enemy of God. But do we see sin the way that God sees it? Let's go back to our question. From what would you wish to be saved? And you might be thinking, I wish to be safe from my, from my hurts and my harms and my habits. I wish to be saved from social unrest, from, from financial stress. And that's fine to, to wish to be saved from those things. But remember, those things have no eternal significance. 
And this is where we have found a forgotten key. Satan has buried an important key to appreciating the grace of our God. So often we sing songs about God's grace and about His mercy, about His love, about His saving power. But do we truly have an appreciation for what His grace is and what His grace covers in our lives? So there's a key that Satan has buried to keep us from truly appreciating the grace that God has bestowed upon us. And like the Jews of ancient times, we've rejected the knowledge of sin. You go back to Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. God wasn't saying you're a bunch of dummies. That's not at all what He was saying. He's saying you are destroyed. Why? Because you lack knowledge. But what was that knowledge? They were rejecting knowledge, but what knowledge? They had forgotten the law of God. The law of God that showed them what sin was. Paul said, I wouldn't have known sin, but by the law. It was by the knowledge of that law that they understood sin and they understood the consequences of sin. They understood that it was an offense against their God. And for that very reason, Hosea warned them, you're destroyed for lack of knowledge about sin. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, over in Luke chapter 11, and also in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is pronouncing this whole list of woes against them. And one of those woes came to them because He said, you have forgotten the key of knowledge, and now you're not entering the kingdom, and you're forbidding others who want to enter into it. What was that key? What was that key of knowledge? Well, it was Jesus. Why did Jesus come to this earth? He came to expose sin. In John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, The world hates me because I expose evil. The world hates me because I expose evil. Jesus, He even sent His Holy Spirit. For what reason? Well, to convict men of their sins. They had forgotten that knowledge. And like the world around us, We've glossed over the seriousness of sin and its consequences. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul says that there are many who would want to become teachers of the law. And he says, now the law is good if it's used for the purpose for which it was designed. Not using it for the right purpose, instead they use it to justify their own faults. I'm concerned that there are times that all of us, myself included, that we don't look at sin the way God looks at sin. We talk about sin and we start thinking about the rankings of sins. We say, well, well, this is what God doesn't like and this is what God doesn't like either, but, but this over here, surely God's okay with that. As long as we don't do these things, God's okay with those we see a person who tells a lie, and we start trying to, to make justifications for it. 
Oh, it was just a little white lie. That's all it was. It wasn't anything big. There was nothing too bad. We need to try to understand his circumstances and his stress whenever he said that. We seek to justify not just our sins, but even the sins of others. We just kind of gloss over it. And church, when we dumb down sin, when we dumb down the consequences of sin, it leads us to no other option but to dumb down the grace of God. We'll never truly come to a greater appreciation of the grace that God has bestowed upon us until we realize sin's offense against our righteous and holy God. We've even gone to this point. The purpose of the Scriptures have been unwittingly pushed aside for the fruit of the Scriptures. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with the fruit of the Scriptures. I believe the Bible teaches, I wholeheartedly believe the Bible teaches there are benefits, there are blessings in, in becoming a Christian. God reveals those. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are fruits of the Scripture. Those are fruits of the Spirit. And they're legitimate. But as incredible as they are, even those fruits fail to blossom. They fail to bloom in the way that God intends for them to bloom in our lives until we recognize sin's offense against our holy God. So what are the purposes of Scripture? When we look into our Bibles, what's the purpose? I'm going to give you four this morning, and there are countless others, I'm sure. But one of the purposes of Scripture is to show the guilt of sin. It's why Jesus came to bring light. Look at John the Baptist. He was preparing the way for Jesus. What was John the Baptist preaching? He was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes on to the scene. He begins preaching. What's he preaching? What's his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus sends out his disciples. He tells them to go and preach. What was the message he told them to preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus sent his disciples out, on the Great Commission, what did he tell them to preach? Repent and enter into the kingdom. Repent, 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 repent. But what is there to repent from if we don't know the seriousness and the consequences of sin? The Holy Spirit came on them to help them. For what reason? To convict men of their sin. Another purpose of the Scriptures is to give knowledge of sin. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. For what? What are the Scriptures profitable for? Well, for teaching. And then we see a list of words that we don't perhaps like as much. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. How does the man of God or the woman of God come into all good works? How are they thoroughly furnished? 
by having a knowledge of what sin is. What's the purpose of Scripture? Well, another purpose is to expose the depth of sin. Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Have you ever come short of something? You're almost there, but you didn't make it. If you fall short of anything, you don't make it. Sometimes we find great delight and great joy and great satisfaction in saying, I almost did it. But will that pay off on the day of judgment? I almost did it. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And that leads us to our fourth purpose of Scriptures. The gift of God is eternal life. The Scriptures give us hope. Hope from sin. Paul told Timothy in that same passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, right before he talks about the inspiration of the Scriptures and what they're profitable for, he says, they're able to make you wise unto salvation. And Paul says with such confidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save men. The Scripture. That's the forgotten key. And the Scripture leads us to understand the depth and the guilt of our sin. And so we ask the question again, from what would you wish to be saved? Again, you might be thinking, I have my hurts. I have my habits. I have this financial stress. There's, there's war and there's poverty. Those, those are the things that I want to be saved from. But what is the one thing from which you would wish to be saved that has eternal significance? I want us to go back to Revelation 21, verse 8. That was part of our scripture reading this morning. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, we look at a passage like this, and, and maybe we wipe the sweat off of our forehead and say, whew, I didn't make the list. But are we sure? Are we sure that we didn't make the list? See, we have in our minds, we look at a list like this and we say, I'm not like that. I'm a good person. There was a man who was talking to a preacher one time and he looked over and he said, I wonder what it is that causes men to cross that white line of morality. That white line of morality. You know what I'm talking about. We've developed this white line. And on one side, we say, over there, they're the good. They're the righteous. They're the holy. They're, they're the moral people. But then on the other side of that white line, they're bad. They're unrighteous. They're unholy. They're immoral. I have a question. Who put that white line there? 
We did. We did. But that's not God's white line. God's white line is a million miles away. Psalm 50, verse 21, God said, And you thought I was one like yourself. Jesus said, What is exalted among men is it's just an abomination in the sight of God. Paul said to the Corinthians, When you measure yourselves by someone else, when you compare yourselves with one another, you're without understanding. And you know, it seems sometimes we make a business out of this, comparing ourselves to the world and justifying our lack of obedience because of how bad other people's sins are in our minds. So let's take a look at Revelation 21, verse 8, and let's just ask some very quick questions. Are you a coward? Let's all take some time for a little self-examination. Are you a coward? Now, a coward isn't just someone who's fearful, but it's someone who fears to do what's right even when they know what's right. James said, when you know to do good and don't do it, it's sin. Are you unbelieving? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19 tells us that the children of Israel weren't able to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. What was their unbelief? They believed in God. So what was their unbelief? Well, it was a brand. It was a status placed upon them by God because they weren't willing to do what God said do. Are you detestable? Are you an abomination, a proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, feet that are quick to run into mischief, a false witness, he who sows discord among the brethren, one who would exalt himself above anyone else. God says, that's an abomination. These are detestable in my sight. Are you a murderer? Oh, no. Hang on. I would never go that far. I would never kill anybody. Well, Jesus gave a warning in Matthew chapter 5. He said, whoever's angry with his brother, whoever says to his brother, you fool, is in danger of the judgment himself. John the Apostle, the Apostle of Love, says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, whoever hates his brother has already done what? has already committed murder. As Jesus said, it's not the things that are on the outside that defile a man, it's what's on the inside. Are you sexually immoral? Well, I would never disgrace my wife. I would never disgrace my friend. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her has already committed adultery. In his heart. It's not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside that defiles a person. Are you a sorcerer? Well, of course not. We don't do witchcraft. Let's think about what sorcerers were. What did they do? Sorcerers took advantage of other people's weaknesses for their own profit. 
And Jesus said, What man would try to gain profit of the entire world and lose his own soul? Are you an idolater? Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 tells us that he who covets is an idolater. Covetousness, wanting something that somebody else has and, and trying whatever you can do to figure out a way to get it yourself so they can't have it. That's covetousness. The Bible says it's idolatry. One of the Ten Commandments, do not covet. Finally, are you a liar? John says if someone says they have no sin, they lie and do not the truth. He even goes so far as to say in verse 10 that you've made God a liar. And of all the things on this list in Revelation 21 verse 8, James says if you've broken one, You've transgressed them all. So let's ask the question. From what would you wish to be saved? Do you see the death? Do you see the guilt? Do you see the offense that sin is against God? The little boy ran off. He proudly took his $5 bill. He came back to his father and said, Here, Daddy, here's $5. You can go to the store now. You can get a brand new vase. I'm sorry for what I've done, but here, I'm paying you back. Father just sort of looked down and shook his head and said, Son, what you saw in the store was nothing but a cheap imitation of the real thing. That vase that you just broke, it was worth over $50,000. Can you imagine the jaw dropping on that little boy? Can you imagine the depth of his problem? Can you imagine the seriousness of what he had gotten into? Not only had he done what his father had told him not to do, he broke something that was very special something he would never be able to pay back. That little $5, that was nothing. According to that boy, he thought he was rich. He thought he had something special. And whenever he saw the vase in all of its pieces, he thought, surely I can repay this. But now he understands the consequences. Now that he understands the guilt, now that he understands the depth of what he's just done, his father turns to the little boy and says, Son, I want you to understand the seriousness of what you've done. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to replace that vase with the real item. You won't have to pay me back. I'm willing to replace it. Now, that boy's guilt has turned into an incredible appreciation. Why? Because his father paid a debt that he never would have been able to pay 
himself. Church, our sins against God, they are debts that are so incredible, debts that are so offensive, there is nothing that we could ever do to make it right with God. Nothing. Not a single one of us is deserving of His grace. Yet it was by His love. It was through His grace that He gave His Son to become sin and erase that debt from us. The wages of sin is death. But that incredible gift from God is eternal life. Consider this question. From what would you wish to be saved? And answer that question right now as we stand and sing.